and over again. And it was the whole deal. It was the, the altar and the, 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 the incense and the bells and the whistles and everything. And, and it was this, it started out as uh, the church was dark and, and kind of symbolizing the, the death of Christ and, and the kind of darkness of his, his death and burial. We all left the church, like 150, 200 of us, and you walk around the church, you come back in, the priest bangs on the door and kind of argues with the devil for a moment, and then the door swings open, and it's light now, and you come in and you're singing, and let me tell you, I mean, it was just something else, okay? Uh, we are very tame <laughs> compared to this this group of Christians who are, are worshiping. Um, and one of them, the, the real unusual thing about the service was the repetition uh, and so those who were there can attest I mean we said the same thing probably 100, 150 times throughout the service and so one of them was uh, Christ is risen trampling death by death and upon those in the tomb bestowing life and by the 50th time you're kind of like I don't want to say this again but by the time you left there was a sense that it was kind of inside of you and you're kind of like I'm kind of glad I said it 5,000 times <laughs> Because I can feel it, and it feels real to me. Um, and they also, it was real cool that the priest would, would walk around, and he'd be swinging the, the incense, and then he'd look at a, a, a group of people, and he'd say, Christ is risen. And then they would all like scream back like a rock concert, like, he is risen indeed. And I thought, how cool is that? How much power does he have over those people? And I thought, what if we did that at FC Cubed? What if today, every time I said, Christ is risen, you said, Christ is risen Pay attention, all right? We're, uh, we're here to worship Jesus' resurrection this morning. We're starting a new series uh, for four weeks. It'll last. It's called Insurrection. Uh, and it's all about Jesus' resurrection and the implications that it has for our lives. It's not a misspelling, okay? We didn't mean to spell resurrection. It's insurrection. Um, and the kind of phrase we'll be playing off of for the next four weeks is um, one from an author called David Hart. He says this, Easter should make rebels out of all of us. Easter should make rebels out of all of us. And, and since I read that a few years ago, it always kind of has stuck in my mind and haunted me and, and made me kind of think through the implications of it. And so we titled the series Insurrection because I want to make the argument over four weeks that Jesus' resurrection was an act of insurrection. Do you know what insurrection is? Yeah, it's an uprising. It gets an authority, a governing power. <coughs> okay, it's, it's a, a takedown of the status quo. And I want to also argue that you and I as Christians are called to be part of the insurrection. That what it means to live the Christian life is to, is to participate in this kind of world-changing movement. And that the resurrection is that, that event which invites us into the insurrection. And so we'll start in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Colossians 2 verse 6. Uh, we'll read through the passage. Verse 15 is really our money verse. That's what we'll be camping out for the series. But we'll start in verse 6. If you have your scriptures, you can read along with me. Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule, and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Zach's not in here to defend himself. Uh, you'd be surprised, I think, how often the Bible talks about circumcision, okay? And, and you'd be even more surprised when you're reading the Bible with children, okay? And how often it comes up and what is circumcision? Well, our middle school group was meeting a couple, couple weeks ago and uh, 
our, our middle school leader was trying to gently explain to the kids what circumcision was, and I was in the other room just dying, just laughing. And he was, I mean, they had charts and diagrams, okay, built sculptures, I don't know what they were doing in there. You can ask any of them, though, and they'll be able to tell you, all right, and they'll be able to tell you we're circumcised of the heart, all right, but so you put off the circumcision of the flesh, put on Christ's circumcision, um, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. And the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here's a, here's a really good truth. We'll come back on this in two weeks. Um, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, according to the scriptures, is also dwelling in believers. Not a portion of that power. Not a piece of that power. The entire thing available to you as a believer. The same power that, that broke through death. <coughs> and, verse 13... You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, here we go, here's our money verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. If you're underlining, highlighting, starring, here we are. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Victory, insurrection. What Paul is saying here in Colossians 2 is that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has won a victory over the powers to be in the world. He's disarmed them. He's taken away all their weapons, all the things they have to use against us so that we might live and live joyfully. Now, I think that Christians, for a long time I've thought this, we have a hard time really understanding the resurrection and really understanding the implications of the resurrection for our lives. Um, Part of it is just where we live and, and how we've grown up in our kind of Christian culture. Um, I would suggest, gently, that you and I as Christians are much better at understanding the cross than we are at understanding the resurrection. That we're, we're much better Good Friday Christians on whole than Easter Sunday Christians. Um, one author puts it like this. He says, we're, we're kind of vampire Christians, right? We're just in it for the blood. We, we want to be forgiven, right? I mean, we need Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. But a Lord who's living and still wants us to do things is kind of awkward and unnecessary for us. And so we, we stick to Good Friday, okay? And, and the, the way this plays out, you'll see this. Um, the Christianity that, that you'll probably recognize that's developed around you has been largely focused on three things. Number one, forgiveness. Your sins have been forgiven. On the cross, this is verse 14, right? On the cross, all your sins... Like a bill nailed to the cross, forgiven, you are no longer held accountable for them. Forgiveness. And then therapy. There's a sense that, that God is our comforter. That all the things that scare us and un un unnerve us and shake us in our life, God comes and, and comforts us. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. And then this, this third one, the afterlife. We focus a lot on, on what's going to happen after we die. Where are you going to go after you die? If you were to die tonight, where would you go? Forgiveness and therapy and the afterlife. And I think all of that is good. I think all of those are important. Again, you see in verse 14 how, how important it is to be forgiven, okay? This is something that happened on the cross. But I want to make the argument that the scriptures portray the Christian life in much broader terms than that. And that when we narrow everything down to being forgiven and to feeling better about ourselves and to what's going to happen to us after we die, we miss out on the bigger picture of what's happening with Jesus and the resurrection and the gospel. What I would suggest is that the Bible places as much emphasis, if not more, not on forgiveness, therapy, and afterlife, but on freedom, on transformation, 
and on our present life. So freedom, okay? The, the difference between forgiveness and freedom would be this. Not only does God forgive you for being materialistic, that's a truth. We live in Sugarland. We're probably all a little greedy, wealthy people, all right? Myself included. God has forgiven us. But he also frees us. There's a big difference between being forgiven of being materialistic and then being freed of being materialistic. Do you see the difference? See the change there? Being changed into the kind of person who's no longer materialistic, who's generous, who gives away, who doesn't hold on to stuff in a tightly closed fist. Forgiveness, but also freedom. And then therapy, sure, but, but sometimes we run the risk as Christians as, as making God out to be kind of our, our like emotional crutch, right? As, as kind of our self-help guru. Um, God sedates us from the pain and suffering in our own lives and of the world around us. When in fact, I think in the scriptures, you'll find that, that God wants us to engage with the suffering and the pain around us. Well, God wants us to transform that, both in our own lives, so that we're not stuck in the same cycles of destructive behaviors and habits, and in the lives of the larger world around us. And in the present life, I think the scriptures place such a huge emphasis on you right now as a believer, experiencing all that Christ has for you to offer. In fact, the, the phrase eternal life, you find that in John. That's where we get that term, eternal life. In John 17, eternal life, according to John, is something that happens now. It's something that you experience in the present. And I've always been confused um, as to people who are not experiencing eternal life right now, but think that something will magically happen when they die. And they'll start to experience it. I'm just not sure what the reasoning is behind it. I mean, no one's been able to clarify that for me. In the scriptures, it seems like this, this gospel thing, this good news thing, this Jesus thing, is something you enter into now, and it carries over after you die. But it's not something you put in your back pocket, and then it starts when you die. Do you see the difference? Now, one of the reasons I think that we have um, had trouble understanding Jesus' resurrection and his death is because we tend to isolate it from the rest of his life. Uh, we tend to think of Jesus as just this one-time uh, sacrifice and resurrection on our behalf. We have trouble with the Gospels, okay? What are all these cute little stories for? Um, are they just like a prelude to the real deal, to the cross and to the resurrection? We don't pay much attention to the Gospels. Um, if you've been here for any length of time, I'm always saying go back to the Gospels, go back to the Gospels, go back to the Gospels. Read Jesus' life, read his ministry. His death only makes sense because of his life. And his resurrection only makes sense because of his life and because of his ministry. If you want to understand what's happening in Jesus' death and resurrection, we have to understand his life and ministry. So if you would flip with me to Luke chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We'll see Jesus begin his ministry here. And give us kind of the foundation for what it's all about. What, what Jesus was about. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Luke 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So Galilee's this like northern area of Israel way up north of Jerusalem, and it's kind of like the boondocks, like they're way out nowhere, right? Like Jerusalem Jews, Jews who lived in the capital, looked down on Galilean Jews. They talked weird, they smelled funny, right? I mean, these are the towns that don't have internet, right? I mean, they're just way out there, and we don't know what to do with them, okay? Um, this is where Jesus is from, this is where he does most of his ministry, he's this, this Galilean Jew, um, and a report about him 
went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. This is Jesus' version of dropping the mic. (laughs) He sits down, and they want commentary. All eyes are on him. They're fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He said, "What, what I just read just happened in front of you. I wasn't talking about a future thing. I was talking about something you just experienced. I have come here to proclaim these things and enact them. Now, now look at what he's proclaiming, okay? It's not um, <coughs> just forgiveness of sins and going to heaven after you die. It's very, like, worldly stuff, okay? He's coming to give good news or gospel to poor people. Jesus is a, a poor person, was a poor person, okay, when, when he um, lived in his, his incarnation here. Uh, we know that Jesus was poor because when his family went to Jerusalem when he was little, they gave two doves as an offering instead of a, a goat. Um, that was an exception made for poor people. If you couldn't afford a goat, we'll just take two little birds. And that's all Mary and Joseph had to offer. Jesus was very familiar with poverty. In fact, the scriptures um, from beginning to end are kind of very concerned with poverty. This seems to be a big thing on God's heart. Jesus says, I've come to say it's about to get better for poor people. There's about to be an economic shift that's good for those who are currently trapped under economic troubles. Which is why as a church, we want to be good news for the poor. I mean, even if they're not Christians, right? We want, we want people in poverty to say, I'm glad they exist. It's good news that they're around. I'm glad that, that whatever they're thinking and whatever's happening to their hearts or minds, I'm glad that it is happening because it means that, that, that we're being taken care of. They think that, that God wants us to be taken care of and they're willing to sacrifice to take care of us. He says, I've come to proclaim good news for the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set the prisoners free. Recovering of sight to the blind, to heal sicknesses, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This last line, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this is a reference to what's called the Jubilee. Um, the Jubilee is from the Old Testament. It was this kind of weird Israelite law that every 49 or 50 years, everything in Israel would be reset. And it was this crazy radical idea. Okay? The idea is this. Every 50 years, every debt you owe, you do not owe anymore. It's gone. So I think, like, this is how my, word, my mind thinks, right? You've got to work the system. Year 48, you take out, like, $2 million in a loan, right? Every debt, take it off. Not only that, but if you're a slave, every slave freed. Everyone gets a new shot. New level playing field every 50 years. Not only that... But any land that was exchanged in the past 50 years goes back to its original owners. So if my father sold off the land that was ours because we were having, having problems, I now come into it again. It's now my inheritance again. Try to imagine trying to implement something like this today. I mean, it's, it's a crazy, radical, economic kind of idea, and, and it kind of represents God's heart for the poor, right? He says over and over again, I'm going to reset the scales, so that certain people can't hoard all of it away from the others. And you know the, the reason God gives for the Jubilee? He says, 
the Exodus, because that's what kind of God I am. You were slaves, and I freed you. So I want you to free your slaves. You were in debt, and I forgave you. So I want you to forgive those who are in debt. I gave you that land, and I want to give it back to you. Be holy, because I'm holy. Jesus says, this is what's happening. He, he says, I'm showing up. We're doing this jubilee thing. Right? Something powerful is happening. Later on in Luke and in the rest of the Gospels, this will be called the kingdom of God. The reign of God showing up. Jesus comes, he says, the kingdom of God is here. The, the reign and rule of God. The idea is that creation has gone horribly astray. And all kind of sin and pain and sickness has entered into creation. And God has finally come back to fulfill his promises and set up his reign. To take control again. To say, this is how I want creation to run. And Jesus shows up and says, it's about to happen. And he claims it's going to happen through who? Himself. He says, I'm not talking about someone else. I'm talking about me. This has very concrete, economic, political, everyday, real-life implications. We often flip the script, I think, as Christians. And we've made Christianity about people on earth going to heaven after they die. When in fact, I think scripturally, a better way to think of the, the narrative of the scriptures is of heaven coming to earth. God's reign and rule, God's desire, slowly being brought to earth, transforming the earth, so that what happens here is what God desires to happen here. This is what the, the Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember this? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God. This is Jesus' mission, okay? This is what he's after. Um, and he is the Messiah, this Jewish word for the king. He's the one who's going to make this all happen. And then he, he enacts out. I mean, he, he goes out into um, the villages and into the surrounding areas in Galilee, and he acts out what he just said here, um, that, that he, he's come for the kingdom to arrive, for things to be radically transformed on the earth. Um, we might illustrate what Jesus is getting at here by, by, saying, uh, by using a couple of illustrations. Okay, So one is, is this. We're trying to think larger picture, okay? I think often as Christians we think small picture and we lose out on the, the, the cosmic scope of the kingdom. Um, what if instead of the church being concerned with making saints, the church was working to make a world where saints weren't needed? Do you see the difference? Where Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. would have nothing to do because there was no more poverty or racism or slavery. What if God's will was slowly and surely becoming more and more reality on earth. Earth was being transformed. Our present lives mattered. Jonathan Edwards is this real famous uh, Puritan preacher, um, and he owned slaves. And, and he was famous for arguing that you should treat your slaves kindly. And, and he got a lot of praise for that, right? Like, look at what a moral hero. Treat your slaves kindly. There's a guy who really knows how to love his enemies. His son comes up after him and goes, my dad was wrong on that. You shouldn't treat them kindly. You shouldn't have them. You see the difference? I mean, there's a big difference. Or the difference between this, giving food to the poor or asking the question, why do we have poor people? It's bigger. It's cosmic. God's trying to transform the world. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm doing it. It's happening. It's go time right now. The kingdom is near. It's happening. It's coming upon us. And then he goes out and enacts it. If you skip down with me and look forward to verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and as he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon has set up a place of authority. And Jesus comes and says, no, this is going to be my kingdom. The demon recognized it. There's this battle um, um, theme here. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out, having done no harm. And while they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. That's such an interesting way to describe the healing. He act, this is the language you use about demons. He rebukes it. Bad boy. This is not how bodies are supposed to work. This is what you see throughout the Gospels. I mean, kind of in a, a unanimous picture. Jesus shows up, and if he sees something that's not God's will for creation, he says, get out. Demon possessed, no more. Sick, be healed. Dead, get up out of the ground. This is not the kind of kingdom that I'm building here. He's rebelling. He's... He's starting an insurrection against the powers that have enslaved humanity, against the mess that we have gotten ourselves in. And so he, he, he cast out a demon, and he healed Simon's mother. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, but would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Um, and when he was day, he departed and went to a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving him. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I must preach the good news that all this is coming to other towns as well. For this I was sent. That was my purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is Jesus' ministry. Okay? He announces the kingdom, and then he enacts it. He shows you what it looks like. He heals people. He casts out demons. And he also eats a lot, which I like about Jesus. <laughs> Um, <coughs> eating is actually one of the primary ways Jesus does ministry in the four Gospels. In Luke, in fact, uh, one scholar said, at all times in Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And they're usually with the strangest people, like the most horrific people in society. Not just like dirty, kind of annoying people. Like the people that really disgust you to the core, who you would really think, if anyone's deserving of death, they're deserving of death. That's usually who he's, he's eating with and kind of having a good time with, subverting the kind of cultural hierarchy. Jesus is, is rebelling against the, the forms of rejection and outcast that we, we put on people and the sense of shame and guilt and, and rejection that we give to certain people. Um, Jesus, uh, his message is the kingdom. He enacts the kingdom. And then watch what happens. If you flip with me to Luke 10, he enlists more people to join the mission. He starts a movement, we might call it. In Luke 10, we'll pick it up in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That never ends well, okay? Um, Dropping a lamb into a pen of wolves. Um, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house 
eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages do not go from house to house. Watch this. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you, heal the sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So Jesus kind of delegates this power, this kingdom power. And he says, what I want you to do is go into more towns than I can just go to by myself. I want you to find sick people, heal them, and then give them this explanation. God's reign is starting to take place. His will is starting to be accomplished more and more and more. What does it look like when the kingdom of God comes near? Demons are cast out. Sick people are healed. Dead people are raised. Sins are forgiven. People are freed. And he says, go and go find those sick people. Heal them. And when they go, what in the world? How did you heal me? Go, the kingdom's here. It's happening. And God's will is starting to become reality on creation as it is in heaven. Now, he keeps on. He says, uh, but in verse 10, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, I kind of love this because he, he says, even if they reject you, on your way out, be like, either way, the kingdom's coming. Right? <laughs> it's not. If we wanted to use the illustration, we could say that the gospel or the kingdom is like a train and not like a taxi. So a train has a schedule, and it's going to its destination whether you get on it or not. Does that make sense? A taxi, though, needs you to like get in and give it a destination and give it a fee. Without you, the taxi is just sitting there useless. And the gospel, the kingdom, is a train. It's happening. Sometimes we use and we do evangelism. We, we share Christ with others with taxi analogies, right? We, we really are trying to convince you to accept Christ and make your life better. When in reality, the gospel is an announcement. This is happening whether you're in on it or not. But I want you to be on it. The question is, is are you going to get on the train and get to the destination? Are you going to be on the right side of history or not? It's not just like a, a cute little religious experience that you might like to try out. This is something that's happening in the world. And so he says, they reject you. Wipe the feet off. Say, still coming. <laughs> I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Skip with me to verse 17. So the 72 go out with these instructions, and they come back. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They come back, and they are pumped up, right? They're like, did you heal a sick person? I healed a sick person. I cast out a demon. Did you cast out a demon? They're like one-upping each other with stories, right? I mean, this is huge kind of, I don't know if you've ever had a reunion of friends, okay, where you all get together and tell like stories that really are like exaggerated into lies, right? And so, I mean, I can kind of imagine the disciples being like, there were five demons there. And the other one was like, there were seven demons in mine, right? And, and I healed this whole town. They were all sick, okay? And they're comparing their kind of war stories and their victories. And they're kind of astonished. I mean, they're, they're kind of amazed. Hey, this is happening. Why didn't I heal the sick person? I told them the kingdom was here. This is really happening in our world right now. And watch what Jesus says in response. He says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Biblically, Satan gets kicked out of heaven during Jesus' ministry. We often think of Satan falling from heaven towards the time of creation. He falls, and then Adam and Eve and tries to ruin everything. Um, but, but if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find Satan's in heaven in the Old Testament. Uh, he has a job. He's, he's the prosecuting attorney. He's the, the one who presents. He's the one who accuses, which is not a bad thing in itself, right? For justice to work, you need someone to present what's gone wrong. 
But it, it can easily be manipulated, right? So imagine the prosecuting attorney now no longer just presents the evidence against you, but traps you so that he has evidence and tempts you so he has more evidence and slowly but surely builds this kingdom here on earth and it ruins everything. The idea in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation, you can go read verse 12 through 14 in Revelation, um, chapter 12 through 14, excuse me, you see this in more like apocalyptic imagery, is that when Jesus is born, Satan falls from heaven. Michael throws him down. He loses his authority. Why? Because his kingdom is being shattered apart. The strongholds he's been built up are being taken back by God through Christ. He says, I see Satan fall from the sky like lightning from heaven. Behold, he says to the disciples, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus is the Messiah and he starts this movement and then he invites people to join him in on it. Now we have a hard time with this kingdom concept. I think one of the reasons is because the world is still pretty messed up. We think if this was starting 2,000 years ago in the first century, you'd think you'd see some more progress. But if you want to read the scriptures faithfully, something happened in the first century that is continuing on to this day. Jesus comes with this message, with this mission. He enlists people to join him in the movement, in the insurrection. And then he goes to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's welcomed. You remember Palm Sunday? And the crowds turn on him pretty quickly. And eventually he's killed. And it seems like the Messiah, King, has died. And it seems like the mission has died. And it seems like the movement has died. On our Good Friday service, if you were here with us, um, we talk about Jesus saying, it is finished on the cross. And we imagine a whole lot of different people saying it's finished on the cross, including the disciples. To a, a man and a woman, all those who followed Jesus were heartbroken when he died. We really thought he was bringing the kingdom. We really thought the jubilee was happening. I cast out a demon in his name, didn't you? You did too. He, but he's dead. Historically, there are a handful of Jewish people from Galilee and Jerusalem who claimed to be a Messiah in the first century and who gathered following, some even bigger than Jesus historically, and who went to Jerusalem and were crucified. Because that's what happened when you claim to be a king. Rome said, be a king on a cross. That would be cute, okay? So you, you've got a handful of these people. I would bet you most people in this room don't know any of their names. They're just weird ancient Jewish religious people. But everybody in the world, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to go out in the streets today and find someone who hasn't heard of Jesus. What happened when these other people, these other movements, when they, the, the leader was crucified, is they either abandoned the movement altogether, they're just kind of like, ah, I guess we'll just go back to what we were doing, or they elected a new leader, right? You just replace somebody. Seems like that would be the, the, the choice for the disciples at this point, right? Who's going to take up his point? We've given, given authority, that kind of thing. This was unfortunate, right? But let's carry forward the kingdom. Um, but, but that's not what happened with Jesus. Because Christians claim that, that he rose again. He defeated death. He came out on the other side. But even though the Messiah seemed to be dead and was dead, he now is alive again. And even though the movement seemed to and was dead, the movement is now alive again. Go back to Colossians 2 with me. 
I think this is what Paul's getting at in Colossians 2 when he says he's disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's, he's put them to shame. He's embarrassed them. He's mocked them in front of everybody. The reason is the cross was the symbol of all the evil in the world, of all the power and darkness in the world, of all the, the, the violence and coercion in the world. Do what we say or we'll push you on this cross for this terrible death. And how does, does God and Christ defeat it? By using it. He tramples down death by death. The cross, he transforms into a victory of a symbol of victory. I mean, he's, he's embarrassed it. And it's almost like the whole world is watching and they see how weak the enemy actually is. And now they're emboldened. Now they have hope and courage. I'm imagining a kid in middle school or high school who uh, is being bullied by somebody and, and and then he sees another kid go up to that bully and just, boom, put him on his back, right? And he goes, oh, maybe I can stand up for myself. Right? He's, he's kind of seen him put to shame. Now, this is a fancy I've had in my mind because it never happened in real life. It's always on the other end of that. Um, <laughs> on the cross, you see death kind of shown for what it is. You see evil and the power shown for what they were. And the resurrection is an act of insurrection. It's God saying no to Satan and sin and death. He's overturning the status quo. That's not how it will be in my world. He's saying no to the verdict that Jesus isn't the true king of the world. No, he is. One of the implications of the resurrection is that the Messiah is still alive. And I think if we don't contemplate this this carefully, we miss out on the importance of it. Jesus is not alive in our hearts. We often use this kind of language. Biblically, it's probably more accurate to say the Holy Spirit's inside of us. When we say as Christians that Christ is risen, I almost missed it. <laughs> what we mean is that he's actually alive. Like, like somewhere in the universe is a Jewish man who's reigning over all of creation. You'll notice in the scriptures, Jesus doesn't shed his body like a snake when he ascends into heaven. The incarnation is eternal. He's just as human as he ever was, and he's just as alive as he ever was. This is the point of it all. Jesus is on the loose. He's slippery. You can't catch him. I mean, what do you do if you're the dark powers? You killed the dude, and now he's alive again. You embarrassed him. You put him to shame. First Corinthians, Paul would say, um, he confounded the rulers of the world. They had no idea what happened. And he'd say, if they knew what was going to happen, they wouldn't have tried to kill him. They would have tried a different way to take him out. He's still alive. Sometimes, I think, we think of Jesus as, um, in the same way as we think of a, a, a good person who's died. MLK. MLK Jr. He had good things to teach us. We can celebrate him on a day, remember his legacy, those kind of things. Um, but, but church service for Christians is not a memorial service. It's not a place where we come to, to think about a guy who is dead. It's a place where we come to worship a man who's still alive <coughs> and still moving and working and acting. Access the beginning of the things that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, continued to do and to teach. He's still on the move, which means not only is the Messiah still alive, but the movement is still alive. The kingdom of God is still alive. The call to participate in the kingdom of God and then to further it is still out there, available to each one of us. It's still going on. 
the resurrection is an act of insurrection. And I think you and I are called to join this insurrection. We've got to think and ask the question, why is Jesus killed? Why was he killed? So I think a lot of times the way we think about Jesus doesn't give an adequate answer to that. We think, well, Jesus told everyone to love each other. And he did, right? I mean, he was emphasizing love. But you don't kill a person just because they're really nice, right? At, 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 at worst, they're just really annoying and you ignore them, right? They're like, love each other, forgive each other, don't hurt each other. <laughs> just put them to the side. You don't, I mean, you don't crucify the person. You crucify someone if they threaten the very structure of your world. If they want to flip things upside down. If they want to take the power and put it somewhere else. If they want to take injustice and fix it. If they want to transform the very world that we are living in, that's when you put them on a cross and say, we don't need you here anymore. And Jesus said, it's not up to you. I'm here, and the kingdom's arrived, and the, the movement is alive. As we celebrate Easter Sunday, I want you to, to contemplate on, on two truths. One, he's still alive. He's alive right now, as alive as he ever was. Sometimes I think this is why we're better Good Friday Christians, right? It's much nicer to have a dead sacrifice than a living Lord who might expect things of us. It's more comfortable. We've been forgiven, and we can kind of just sit tight until we die. That's a lot more comfortable than that. Jesus is still alive and still doing and moving and acting in the ways he was moving and acting. And then two, I want you to, to remember that the movement is still alive. The kingdom is still alive. <coughs> You're called to experience it. So some of you, you, you might have areas in your life where you are not free. You're stuck in cycles of sin and abuse and destruction and pain and depression. You might not feel forgiven. You might have these sins that, that feel like there's just no way God can forgive them. And you're called to enter into the kingdom, receive his grace, come to the cross, see your, see your sins nailed up there. They're gone. See your life transformed and freed. And then all of us are also reminded we're called to join that movement, to further it. There's work to be done, folks. And this is why the church exists. To go out into the world as a light and darkness, a salt in a world that's lost its flavor. Um, C.S. Lewis has this quote, and I'll end with this. He says, The world is a, a great sculptor's shop, and we are all statues. And there's a rumor going around that one day some of us are going to come alive. So on Easter Sunday, I ask, are, are we alive? Have we entered into that resurrection live? And I would invite you to proclaim, both with us, First Calling Christian Church, and the church around the world this morning, that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.